Second Kings chapter 13, last week we left off with verse 13, which is where we'll pick up today. And if you were with us or if you listened to the lesson last week, we asked a question, was that battle between Judah and Israel worthy? Was it worth it? No, it was not. These were two nations that had once been one nation under God. And now they're fighting against each other. And boy, the devil loves that when the church does that, fights against one another. But that battle, as many church battles today are interdenominational battles, were not based upon righteousness, at least not on both sides. And King Joash of Israel died, and this verse tells us, or the verse before, he was known for his might. Specifically, his might wherewith he fought against the king of Judah. And we don't consider that as a compliment. So let's look at verse 13 now about Joash, this king we've been reading about for the last three or four verses. And it says, And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now we have another Jeroboam, the son of Joash, and he's going to be a different Jeroboam than the one we read about whenever the kingdom was divided back in Rehoboam's day after Solomon died. And that Jeroboam was so wicked that everyone named Jeroboam after him must have suffered greatly in school and among their peers. Poor guy, it must have been like being named Cain or Judas after those men. Those names bring forth memories of a lot of bad things those people did. But this Jeroboam will be different and we'll read about him later. Look in verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now don't let this confuse you, because you just read that Joash died. And now you're seeing that Joash came down and saw Elisha. Joash didn't resurrect from the dead to come see Elisha. This is what is called a a parenthetical. And what it means is, after the death of Joash, there's a stop. And the scriptures go back and tell about an event that happened during Joash's life. This is not the first time you've seen this in the Bible if you've been paying attention. But where it, so Joash is alive, a story is being told about what happened before Joash died. And where has Elisha been during all this turmoil? We haven't seen his name for a while, have we? We haven't heard his voice recently. In fact, the last time Elisha was mentioned by name was in 2 Kings chapter 9, four chapters back. Now, it's not that 
His words were silent during this time period. Through all these kings we've read about from chapter 9 to chapter 13. It's not that his words were silent. It's that those words went unheeded. They were the same as they always were. Elisha had to speak God's word but one time for the people to hear it. And they were responsible for obeying it, whether Elisha spoke it again and again and again or not. But they had, those words had become irrelevant to the people. When you hear someone say that about the Bible, oh, that's irrelevant for today. That, that's not current. It doesn't meet the needs of our society. Well, all that's a lie. That's the same mistake that the people had or made in the times we're reading about. And it's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way, where people say, if you love God's Word, and if you try to live by it, that you're old-fashioned. That's okay. All those names don't change the truth, do they? I took particular interest in a, in a topic this weekend as I was studying. I wanted to know how many churches had, were going to shut down on Super Bowl Sunday so their people could have their Super Bowl parties and do all of that. And uh, then my second thought was, well, I don't believe the Lord's church would ever shut down for something like that. But some churches have. In fact, that's been a fad for a long time. There was a church in East Texas about 10 years ago this happened, and they told their pastor, hey, you, the Super Bowl was in Dallas or in Arlington. Did you go watch that. You take a break. And he went. <laughs> Instead of telling his people, no, we're going to meet. It's the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day was instituted before this silly game was. And I'm not anti-sports. I, I like them just fine, but they have their proper place. And they're way down the list when it comes to God's Word. And so what people will say is, well, it's irrelevant. The, the Bible's irrelevant today, just like the people did in Elisha's day. But do you know what they're really saying, both then and now? When people say that God's Word is out of date, they're saying God is out of date. When they say God's Word's irrelevant, they're saying God is irrelevant. And unfortunately, that's really the way they feel. But they're foolish. Man thinks his glory is going to last forever. Such men think this. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25 say. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So those two verses show us that not only is God's word relevant, it endures forever. It's never irrelevant. And furthermore, it's by that enduring 
always relevant word of God that the gospel is preached. So when the so-called modernized preacher, the one who likes to do all the things that the world is doing and then try to get his people to church, when he preaches the gospel, well, first of all, he's not preaching the gospel because he believes that the gospel as it was preached in the Bible is not up to date, that he's got to reach people a different way. But Peter said that that enduring word is how the gospel is preached. Now think about the apostle Peter. He lived in the first century AD, and the gospel had been preached before him. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 says the gospel was preached to Abraham. Abraham lived thousands of years before Peter. Now, Peter could have said, you know, that gospel that Abraham received, it's different now, guys. We're living in the 100, uh, we're living in the first century AD. We're not a bunch of BC Christians. And so we're going to, we're going to make this updated. We're going to give it to you in a way that, that meets your needs. He didn't say that. He said, this word endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. So when a person goes to a church expecting the up-to-date, modern, worldly type of church, and they don't get that, and instead they hear the gospel that tells them what they are and who God is and that Jesus is their only answer to the sin problem that has condemned them, they don't like it. They say, well, that's narrow-minded, that's, uh, you're calling people names, no, what we're doing is we're presenting the enduring word, the same enduring word that Peter wrote about and preached, the same enduring word that Isaiah taught, and that Moses and Aaron under the law, and Abraham, and all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve. It's the same gospel, and it's the same enduring word, yet the people in Elisha's time in King Joash's time, thought it to be irrelevant. And something else that the passage shows us in 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, is that not only is God relevant, not only is his word enduring, but the glory of man is irrelevant. It does change. It does fail. Why do you think we have fads? Man, bell-bottoms have gone in and out and in and out again since I was a boy. Why is that? Because they were relevant, and then they were irrelevant. Something else took their place, and then somebody said, hey, let's bring that back, and then somebody else. And uh, thank God hip-huggers are out right now. I wish they'd never come back in, but I know they will. I know man. And you could just go on and on, whether it's music or literature or how people speak. Those things go in and out. That's the glory of man. That's man's crowning achievement. It fades away just like the grass because it can't continue. And the people of Elisha's day would have done well to meditate on that very truth that God's word will endure. Not thrones, not kings, 
nations, or any other earthly thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8. The Apostle Paul uses the word charity, and it is the word for love. It is the Greek word agape, which is the highest kind of love there is. It's the one that Jesus loves us with. Charity or love never faileth. In other words, it's never irrelevant. It never does lose its strength. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. That is, man's prophecies. Whether there be tongues, languages, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, these are all things that man is involved in. But charity, that is God's love, never fails. So what never fails? It's charity. It's agape. It's the Greek word for the love Jesus had for us. And that word faileth means to become inefficient or to lose power. We might say to become irrelevant. So the word of God endures forever. The love of God endures forever, never fails. But what man says and does and imagines and knows will all fail. It will all become irrelevant. Only God established what will endure. And the children of Israel, both in these days and in other times we read about, particularly under evil kings, were looking to things that were irrelevant. They were looking to things that failed. Rather than looking to the word of the Lord that Elisha had spoken to them, and which the prophets had written before Elisha. Now between, we're thinking about silence, a period of apparent silence in God's word, a period where it appears that a prophet was not actively speaking to the people, at least as recorded in the Bible. And between the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and the book of John, there were approximately 400 years of silence, meaning there wasn't a scripture written during that time. So if people say, well, God went away, no, he didn't. Well, his word must have, have expired. No, it didn't. It endures forever, even through those 400 years, which to God is just a blink of an eye. And sometimes that period between Malachi and John, or you have Matthew listed as your first book in the, in the gospel, sometime during that period, a man was born whose name was John the Baptist. And he came preaching, and we read about him in the gospels, particularly in the book of John. But that was called the intertestamental period. Now, there were some books that were written during that time that are collectively known as the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard that word before, the Apocrypha? Okay. If you're not a Bible student, then you probably haven't heard of those. If you are a Bible student, you still might not have heard of those. You know why? Because they're not Scripture. It's okay if you don't know them. I don't want you to go read them. I don't want you to get confused. But that word apocrypha is a Greek word. It means hidden or secret. 
And although the Apocrypha is said to chronicle events that took place during those 400 years, those writings are not the inerrant words of God. Now, they have a lot of historical value, just like your encyclopedia or history books you read in school. They contain some genealogies that track families in in, in the Jewish nations. So they're not entirely useless, but some of them contradict what God's Word says, as I showed you last week by reading, or maybe the week before, by reading one of those passages. And by the way, step to the side a little bit here, if there are any King James-only folks in here or listening or watching later, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay too. It's people who believe that the King James translation is the only translation that's accurate for all the world. The problem with that is, well, there are a lot of problems. But for the King James only people, they're already shaking mad right now. Did you know that the Apocrypha was part of the King James Version for 274 years? It wasn't removed until 1885 A.D. So my question to those folks is, which King James translation are you using? And don't get angry. It's a valid question. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I love you. And if you claim that the King James is the only acceptable translation of the original languages in which the Bible was given, I have a few questions for you. One, do you have a 1611 King James Version? Probably not, but if you do, you've got the Apocrypha in your Bible. If you answered no to the first question, no, I don't have a 1611 King James Version. In fact, most of the folks don't. Then... Which of the revisions of the 1611 translation do you have? Is it the one that was done in 1629 or 1638 or 1760 or 1769? Most of you and I have the 1769 revision so we can read it. If you've ever seen the 1611 King James, the first thing you're going to notice is it's hard to read. Whichever revision you have, King James only, folks, how do you know it's the one that you claim to be the only true English translation of God's Word? Now, I don't expect anybody from that crowd to have a thoughtful, logical, scripturally sound answer to my question. Every answer I've ever read about it and every person whom I've engaged in any kind of conversation got angry, they were emotional. It's just like trying to talk to a liberal. Except I believe these people are normally very conservative people. I believe they love God's Word, and I believe they want to have the right translation. And I believe many of them, maybe all of them, but I believe many of them are saved. However, and this will drive them crazy, we use the King James translation here. We just don't use the 1611, or you and I wouldn't be able to read much of it. And we'd have to put up with the Apocrypha being in the middle of it, wouldn't we? And we don't want to kill trees for that. But you know, even though you may have the 1769 revision like I do, 
it doesn't mean God's word was changed. Because the word of the Lord endureth forever. That's what we just read. Whether there's intertestamental silence or whether there are translations of the original languages, the word of the Lord endureth forever. You're not going to change God's word. No matter what you try to do, whether you don't talk about it or do talk about it. And I taught on this a few years ago, so if you're ever interested in a step-by-step scriptural look at how we got our Bible, you can go back on Facebook and find the lessons. I won't reteach it here, but I thought I'd throw that in there since we are dealing with a period of silence from Elisha. And granted, it was much shorter than the period of silence between the Old and the New Testament, but there's a common truth here. And here it is. Here's what I want you to get. When God has given his word, you don't need to have a living prophet among you in order to believe that word. The Christians who lived in 200 B.C., who hadn't seen a prophet and wouldn't see a prophet living among them, were still bound to believe the word of God that they had And that was the Old Testament. They had it. They had the whole thing. The law and the prophets that pointed them to the Messiah who would come, who would be announced by John the Baptist in the book of John. And John the Baptist was simply quoting that which Isaiah quoted. So those Christians, even though there was a period of what is called silence, at least as far as God's word being given to a living prophet or to to an apostle, They were still bound by what they had heard. They were still bound by what had been given. And in Elisha's day, in Joash's day, when Elisha's voice hadn't been heard since several kings before Joash, the people were still bound to live by it. You better believe it if you're the last person standing on the earth. You know, the apostle John believed it when he was exiled to Patmos. And the Bible doesn't tell us whether he was alone there or not. He very well may have been. But he was in exile. He was in exile for his testimony, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was a Christian. Jeremiah believed God's word, even though he was in the dungeon of his oppressors. Many people would say, "Ah, boy, God's forsaken you, hadn't he? No. He hadn't forsaken Jeremiah. He used him greatly in there. Daniel believed it when he was in the den of lions, didn't he? He had been praying to God, and some wicked men made a rule, tricked the king into saying anybody who prays in the next 30 days to anyone other than our king is going to get the death penalty. Well, Daniel prayed every day. He wasn't going to be dissuaded. He believed God's word while he was praying out his window. He believed God's word when he got put in the den of lions. And the children of Israel should have been believing God's word even in the furnace of affliction of this Syrian army who was attacking them over and over again. So from chapter 9 until chapter 13, verse 14, Elisha was not addressed, but now he is sick unto death. And you might wonder, well, why did the writer wait until verse 14 to describe these interactions between Joash, who's dead, and Elisha? Why didn't he do it while Elisha was alive, put it in chronological order? 
That's not the only place in the Bible you'll see that, as I mentioned earlier. Listen to a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 2. This is the first place you see it. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he hath made. Now we know God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, with the seventh day being a day of rest. He finished the work in six days. He rested on the seventh. All of that was part of his creation, resting from his works. So he's done in verse 2. But if you go down to verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, you, if you just read that in chronological order, you might say, Wait a minute. I thought God was done. He was. He'd already created man as told to us back in chapter 1, verse 27. But what the Bible is doing here is simply amplifying upon something God had already done. Tells us he created all that he created, and what was the most important creation he made? In his eyes, it was man, because he put man over everything on this earth. All the plants and animals and the water and all of that. Man was in charge of it. Man tended the garden, not the animals. So there's not an error or a contradiction. God didn't finish and then create man again after he finished. He was done. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Another way to look at this, asking why would we hear a story about Elisha and Joash after Joash has already died? You ever been to a funeral? That's what we do at funerals, isn't it? Somebody's dead, and we go back after they're dead, and we tell a story about something that happened while they were living. It's part of remembering and, and honoring the love, loved one who's passed on. Those events actually occurred during the person's lifetime, but they're told after his or her death. He doesn't have to be brought to life again so we can tell the story. So we're going to learn, now that you know that the verses after verse 13, uh, about through the end of the chapter, are about events that occurred during Joash's life, then you won't think, wait a minute, I thought he was dead. He was. We're just learning about another thing that happened before he died. The only thing that makes it thoroughly confusing is there's another Joash in Ju Judah who is king. So we're talking about this Joash right now, okay? This Joash read that Elisha was sick unto death, or he heard of it, and so he came down to him. Now, both literally and figuratively, this is what we would call condescending. That is, the king of Israel, he's the head honcho in Israel, has come down, he's condescended, he's lowered himself to come see a prophet who's sick on his deathbed. Joash was a king. Elisha was a prophet. It would have been customary for Elisha to go up and see the king rather than for the king to come down and see the prophet. That's what Moses did when he went to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh, the Lord said, let my people go. Now, why did Joash condescend? Why did he come down? What was his motive well, we've studied his low spiritual standing, haven't we? We've studied that there wasn't anything good said about him. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked after the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He fought against 
his sister nation. And so that wasn't good. This is a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. So why would he suddenly be interested in the illness of a prophet who was his polar opposite? Now, if I got sick unto death and one of the church members said, I'm going to go see Brother Andy, he's sick unto death. Well, that wouldn't be a surprise at all. But if somebody from the the church of Satan or some atheist out here walking around the street said, I'm going to go see, I heard that the associate pastor of Central Baptist Church in Maybank is sick unto death, I'm going to go see him. You might say, well, what are you going there for? What, what's your motive? And that's the question I had here. So you have a spiritual irony, but let's look at the practical reasons Why would Joash be concerned about Elisha being sick unto death? Now remember, Elisha had done many miracles. God had used him to turn the famine and defeat of Israel into a great victory over Syria back in King Jehoshaphat's day. We studied that several months ago. So if Elisha dies, the Syrians who have set themselves against Israel, who are attacking Israel, might prevail and overrun them. Now that would be something Joash would be interested in. If Elisha dies to Joash, that's the golden goose dying. That's how he sees Elisha. As one who gives Israel a military advantage over a temporary enemy. That's pretty shallow, isn't it? We have no indication that he sees him otherwise. He could see him as one who has, who God has used to give the words of life to Israel that they might have victory not over a temporary enemy but over an eternal one, and that is sin. And it says, if you'll look back down in verse 14, In the middle of the verse, and Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face. Now we're about to see a show. King Joash wept. He cried over Elisha's face. What kind of tears were these? Yeah, were these tears of fright or tears of repentance? And as Elisha was sick unto death, I believe Joash was afraid of his own death. Where were these tears when Joash led the people of Israel to sin? That would have been a time for tears of repentance. Where were these tears when the people worshipped false gods following along after their king? And those people died and went to hell in unbelief. Thousands upon thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, died and went to hell in unbelief. Where were the tears when Joash thought about his own sin? And how he had despised God's word and Elisha's preaching all of those years before. Notice where he wept. He wept over his face, like right there. He waited until he was in Elisha's presence to weep. Putting on a show. 
You know, occasionally, I'm sure you have, if you're a Christian, I've been moved to tears by a precious Bible truth. And most of the time, I'm by myself when this happens. I'm in the pickup going fishing, and, or I'm studying upstairs, or just reading my Bible or meditating on a truth. And if, but if the only time I'm ever moved to tears by God's Word is when the pastor can see me, when he's looking at me, or when you can see me, then both those tears and my life outside this church are suspect, aren't they? I uh, remember a, a lady in one of the churches I attended years ago, and our pastor could preach the Word and I mean, she sat there and listened to it, and I'm sure she enjoyed it. But if we ever had a guest speaker, man, the tears would come, and she'd raise those hands and do all these histrionics. And I told my wife, after I'd seen that a few times, I said, you know, the only time old sister so-and-so makes a big show is when we have a guest speaker. wonder why that is. It was a little suspect. And look down here what he says. He's wept over Elisha's face, and look back in verse 14 there at the end. And Joash, the king, says, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Where in the world did that come from? Not only did Joash cry selfish tears, he said selfish words. And when you see where that came from, you're going to say the same thing. We see no record of Joash ever speaking about or speaking to Elisha during his reign. No interaction. Now, there may have been some that's not recorded, but we don't read about it. There didn't appear to be a special relationship between the king of Israel and a qualified spiritual advisor such as Elisha. And now he says to the dying Elisha these words, Oh, my father, where did he get these words? If you're taking notes, write down 2 Kings chapter 2, chapter 11. Let me make sure. I'm sorry, chapter 2. 2 Kings 2, chapter 2, and I believe it's verses 1 through 2. Let me make sure. I have a, a typo here. Now, you all know how cheap I am, don't you? I got a new computer, and it is cheap. And the first lesson I pulled up on it, I opened up the Microsoft Word, and it says, you're going to get charged if you use Microsoft Word. So I just use WordPad. Well, it doesn't have a spell check on it at all, so my eyes are my spell check. That's why I have this there. I'm not paying for Microsoft Word. Not yet, anyway. All right. I may have to give you all the the right citation on that verse. It's it's in 2 Kings chapter 2, but I don't want to stand here and try to look for it and overcome my my mis mistyping. But I this will this will be familiar to you if you've been in our lessons. Elijah and Elisha were walking together and it was on the day when Elisha would or Elijah would be taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. 
And here's what took place in the verses that I wrote down erroneously. But these are the words. And it came to pass as they still went on, this is Elijah and Elisha walking together, and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder, went right in the middle of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. So when Elisha said these words to Elijah, he had just seen God take Elijah to heaven after a chariot of fire and horses went right between those two prophets. And before this, Elisha had been walking with Elijah, heeding his words, learning God's words from this prophet, his senior, his field training officer. And after Elijah was taken up, his mantle was left here, that outer coat that he wore. And Elisha took that up. And that's where those words come from. That's when they were spoken. They had profound meaning to Elisha. And he experienced those words. He watched those char- that chariot. He watched the horse. He watched his, who he called his father, meaning his spiritual father, his mentor, go up into heaven in a whirlwind. But Joash, he didn't have that kind of relationship with Elisha. He didn't follow Elisha or ask for a double portion of his spirit as Elisha did Elijah. And he certainly wasn't going to take up where Elisha left off in the ministry of God's word to Israel. So these words that Joash spoke to Elisha here... And those tears that Joash shed over Elisha's face were just a put on. That's all that, that's what we'd say, isn't it? It was just a put on. We might even say as what was written about Lot when he preached to his sons-in-law and daughters, that he seemed as one that mocked. In other words, where did that come from, Joash? Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. I was in a church in the 1990s where there was a man who hardly ever came to our services unless there was a business meeting or a gospel singing. It's the only two times he would ever come. Now, the rest of his family was there most of the time, but he himself was a pretty good bass singer. In fact, he was a very good bass singer, and he sang in quartets from time to time. And we hadn't seen him in church for a long time until one Sunday. We had a quartet scheduled to sing in the sanctuary. And guess who their bass singer was? It was our church member. And so he was up here, and as the mute, not in this church, but the other one, as the music started for the first song, this man put the microphone up to his mouth and said, Isn't it great to be saved? And my first thought was, yes, it is wonderful to be saved. And my second thought was, where have you and your enthusiasm for God's saving work been in the last few months? 
And just as that man's inconsistent testimony made it difficult for me to accept the sincerity of his words, Joash's inconsistent evil life makes it difficult for us to accept that these tears and these words were righteous. Those words were spoken and those tears were shed, and I don't believe they were in mourning for the man of God who had been precious to Israel. They weren't shed for that, but maybe more so because of the miracles of deliverance he'd performed in Israel. Not because he brought God's word to them, but because without Elisha, Israel might be conquered by the Syrians. How shallow is that? Now look in verse 15. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. This reminds me a lot of the way Jesus responded to the things his disciples would say. Rather than carrying on the conversation with them about the words they say, he just gave them a commandment. And Elisha didn't acknowledge all of this drama from Joash. He told him to do something that we might find peculiar. He told the king to take, which means to fetch or to seize, a bow and arrows. Now, if the story stopped right there, you might think, well, Elisha's going to ask him to put him out of his misery. He's sick unto death, and he's going to say, man, shoot the arrows through me and put me out of my misery. But that wasn't the case. The time and the manner of Elisha's life and death were in God's hands, and God would determine when that happened. He was, the Bible already told us he was sick unto death. That means he was going to die from this illness. Now let's look at verse 16. I'm going to read verses 16 through 17, and then we'll comment. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria... For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. So the bow and arrows were instruments of war. And in this passage, the arrow is a type of God's deliverance. That's what the scripture actually tells us. Now that particular arrow, that physical arrow, was not going to deliver Israel. But it would show Joash how that delivery was going to be done. Remember, Elisha told him, take the arrows, not just one arrow, and you'll see why next week. The arrow is nothing without the bow. You couldn't throw an arrow hard enough to kill somebody. Oh, you might cut them or scratch them a little bit, put a bruise on them. But when it's shot from a bent bow, it's capable of not just hurting someone, but of killing them. And the bow also has to be part of this picture because it's what launches the arrow toward its target. And next week, we're going to see the significance of that. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for those who are faithful to come and faithful to tune in on the Internet to the Sunday school lesson, to the worship service that we will have in a few moments. And Lord, I pray you'd feed your sheep. 
and that you would draw the lost unto the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ, that they would no longer be lost, Lord, that they would put their trust in Jesus and be a part of the Lord's church. And we pray for our pastor as he brings the message in a few moments, that you would give him the clarity of thought, give him freedom, strengthen his voice, and, Lord, remove from him any cares or worries or distractions that might hinder your word going forth, because the word of the Lord endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.